Okay, we're going to get started. <coughs> Let me just introduce our uh, special. Um, you told me not to do a long formal introduction, so I'll just read everything that you sent me and I'll say a personal anecdote as well. So, um, right. philosophical theology at the University of Birmingham. Before that, he taught for many years at the University of Edinburgh. Um, he's, he's written a lot of commentary. Mass. He has a strong research interest in interreligious engagement, including Indonesia. He's very committed to strong partnerships between British and Indonesian institutions. In fact, today he was just at meetings with the British Embassy to make that happen. And for the sake of resourcing younger scholars in their theological service to the church, he's currently finishing up a book called Reparative Reasoning, which is a study of the ways in which theological thinking adapts to new circumstances and the kinds of philosophical thinking which helps this adaptation. Welcome to that. Um, so, that's who Professor Adams is, and I'm very delighted to have him here. He's going to be giving us a talk called Does God Suffer? Focusing on the theology of Jürgen Boltmann. Just a personal anecdote. I first got to know Professor Adams when I was at the University of Edinburgh. I sat in a Hegel reading group with him. Actually, Dr. Uh, Denny was also there um, with us reading Hegel together. He was the most intimidating professor I've ever sat with. <laughs> and he rebuked my readings of Hegel multiple times during that time. I don't know if you remember any of this. But, um, now I know that he's actually not as uh, intimidating as I thought, but he's actually still intimidating, but also at the same time approachable. So very glad that Professor Adams is here. It's really, really surprising, and we're really glad it all worked out. And I'm so glad you guys are here, and I hope we'll have a good time. Professor Adams will speak for about uh, 30 to 40 minutes, and then we'll just engage in a Q&A. So Professor Adams, please take it from here. Thank you. I think I'm mic'd up, and is it just recording, or is it, is it actually amplifying my voice? Okay, so if I speak up at this register, then you can hear me a bit better at the back. So, Abraham, can you hear me? Okay. Um, well, f first of all, it's wonderful to have a chance to speak in this kind of gathering. It's made possible by two unlikely things coming together. The first is that there is a new generation of very talented Indonesian intellectuals studying in Britain, including Gray and Denny. Um, so it's very good to see you. And the second is that social media um, is the reason for this. Um, it, we had a brief interaction on Facebook. Uh, and this then enabled the possibility of, of coming and talking to you. So thank you very much. And we're very proud of this new generation of Indonesian scholar. And we hope there'll be very many more of you studying. But most of all, I hope that we will have more European scholars spending time in Indonesia. I think there's an, an immense amount that we can learn from the, the different traditions as they interact with, collide, adapt together under changing circumstances. And this is an extraordinary country, which I know only the smallest amount. This is, my, I think, my seventh visit to Jakarta. Um, everyone says, ah, do you speak Bahasa Indonesia? To which I always say, Bilum. <laughs> but it's been a long Bilum. So as Gray said, this talk's going to come out of some work I've been doing recently on what I call reparative reasoning, the reasoning that repairs. I am passionately committed to the idea that the role of philosophy in theology is to help fix problems, not to try to tell us what the truth is. Um, this is a very minority view. Most philosophers, I think, would see it their role that philosophy should articulate the truth. I think that's the role of theology to do, and I think it does it very well. But theology gets into trouble often, um, as it should, because it often collides with changing circumstances. 
And under those circumstances, now Gray's introduction introduces the kind of the nice, the nice Nick Adams, the, the, the peaceful, the resourcing kind. But philosophy can indeed help theology when it comes into trouble, but it can also obstruct it. Um, but this evening I want to talk about a case where philosophy might help a particular thinker. Um, now, Jörn Moltmann, if I can do one thing, I can teach you how to pronounce his first name. It's pronounced Jörn, one syllable. Jörn Moltmann um, is a German theologian. He's still alive. He was born in the late 1920s and served in the Second World War and was a prisoner of war, in fact. Um, does anyone here not know Moltmann? Because if you don't, I'll tell you a bit about him. So Moltmann's of a generation who came back from the battlefields of, of Europe. They really wanted to resource the church, addressing urgent social issues. So if you, if you cast your mind back to the period when Moltmann was writing his earliest works, we're basically time traveling now back to the mid-60s, which is a very, very different world from the Germany of today. Um, Germany was reunified in 1989, and it's been a very, very different story since then. But before that, the, the 1960s was a period of immense economic growth in Germany. I mean, absolutely fantastic growth. No other country in Europe saw anything like this. And this was the defeated nation after war. It had been completely bombed out. Its industry had been destroyed. And this extraordinary industrial miracle, um, the Wirtschaftswunder, um, was at its peak. And Moltmann was of a generation of theologians who were really socially conscious that this enormous financial growth and industrial growth in Germany was not being accompanied by social responsibility. So he, in a very prophetic way, he and his colleagues called the churches to serve the working classes, the factory workers, the new unionized workers, essentially those who were being exploited um, in this incredible period of growth. Um, so, and against that background, he wrote a book called The Crucified God, which is a confrontation with suffering. And his main worry, which he thinks theologians need to take seriously, is that the major forms of literature in Europe from the period of the 1920s up until the 1960s, the literature which really grips people's attention, isn't the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's atheist literature, which really confronts evil, suffering, and the darkness of the 20th century. And he, th he is concerned that this is what is compelling for young people in Germany. Does the church have nothing to offer that's similarly compelling to this atheist literature? So there's an enormous resurgence of interest in figures like Dostoevsky in the late 20th century. Dostoevsky was writing in the late 19th century. So nearly 100 years later, he becomes a newly relevant figure. There's a strong interest in Nietzsche's very dark philosophy. Um, there's the rise of the Frankfurt School social criticism in the 1940s, which really confronts the ways in which capitalism in that period is closely allied to totalitarianism and a certain kind of mob consciousness, which brought the National Socialists to power in both Germany and then the fascists in Italy and in Spain. So that's his basic worry. So I think you'll agree it's a real worry. 
are we really going to cede the entire field to extreme dark atheist literature? Do we have nothing to say? His worry is that there's a certain kind of self-satisfied, smug Christianity which says everything's fine. And he says that is not going to speak to people. They do not think everything is fine. They think everything is not fine. And then the other is uh, a form of, of Christianity which tries to accommodate itself very quickly to the surrounding culture and says, no, no, we're going to be very relevant. We're going to engage with, with local categories. We're going to tell you the things that you want to hear. He says, no, that's not the job of the gospel. We need to both set our faces against prevailing culture, but also for the sake of those whose lives matter in it. That's why he wrote The Crucified God. The main thesis of A Crucified God is that God suffers. Now you might think, well, that's not very objectionable. Why would anyone want to say that? And the, the reason it's a, a strange thing to say is that the Christian tradition before this has been very careful to say that Jesus suffered. And in the words of the Creed, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So it's there in the, in the heart of the Creed. So Jesus suffers. But to say God suffers, well, the tradition has said maybe. I mean, Jesus is fully God and fully man, and Jesus suffers, so yes, God suffers. But the idea that God the Father would suffer is really not something which the tradition could even have imagined for the first thousand years of our tradition. And then even way up into the middle of the 20th century, I think you'd be very hard-pressed to find any major theological voices saying that God the Father suffers. Jesus suffers, God the Father not. And Montman says this won't do. We have to find some way to take suffering seriously. If we say that God the Father doesn't suffer, and that only, only the human side of Jesus suffers, this won't address the urgent needs of this generation who are concerned with suffering in a very basic way. In other words, they will continue to be seduced by atheist literature, and the Christian church will lose everyone. That's his concern. So he wants to advance the idea that God the Father does suffer, and to cut a very, very long story short, the text is tiny, by the way, um, his core thesis, very interesting thesis, is that God the Son suffers on the cross and suffers physically, and God the Father suffers in a way that is his grief for the Son. So he divides the labor of suffering between the suffering of the Son, which is the kind of suffering that we do, and the suffering of the Father, which is the suffering of a, of a father who, whose, whose son is suffering. So a deep, deep grief. The attribution of grief to God the Father is a very new idea in Christian theology when he introduces it. And it has not proven persuasive. And many people immediately after and long after have criticized Moltmann for introducing this innovation and have said this is, this is a bad Trinitarian theology. It's unnecessary. Um, this, it needs to be fixed by affirming the doctrines of the past. 
because Moltmann very significantly, as it will, will come on to, rejects the Chalcedonian understanding of Jesus Christ because he thinks it's too static. It doesn't, it doesn't allow for enough Trinitarian action. Now, I also want to argue against Moltmann. I want to say that he's wrong to affirm the suffering of the Father, but it's not because it's bad theology, I want to argue. I, I do think it's bad theology, but that's not the reason to oppose it. I've got other reasons to oppose it, and we'll find out whether you find them persuasive Haha, <laughs> in due course. <clears throat> so the first major claim I want to make to you is about what Christian theology does. I want to suggest to you that Christian theology has a long history of correcting its thinking under certain human circumstances. So God doesn't change, but we certainly do, and when we change, our theology changes with it. That's to say, when Christian communities encounter change, or when we encounter novelty, or when we enter periods of crisis, we don't just adapt our practices, we also repair our thinking. Now, most obviously, this applies to the field of ethics. Over the course of centuries, we, and, and over the course of moving between different continents, we repair and we adapt how we eat. We adapt how we respond to violence. So early Christian communities were very opposed to violence. Later Christian communities come to terms with what it means to, to run countries. We change how we live in families, and things like that. So the field of ethics, in enormously contested fields, Christians never agree about how we should do these things. We certainly adapt to changing circumstances. But it doesn't just show up in ethics. It also appears very emphatically in doctrines. Doctrines change. So the earliest Christian communities developed new and, I would say, repaired doctrinal thinking about God, for example, as creator out of nothing. That was a novel idea when it was introduced. About God being three in one was a very novel idea when it was introduced. About Jesus being fully God and fully man, that was a, an astonishing thing to claim when it was first claimed, and so on, things like that. These are all adaptation to new circumstances. I mean, they're now so old for us that we take them for granted. They're part of the furniture. We can relax into it, and it's, it's part of who we are. But when they were first advanced, these were really strange things to say. And I think it's good to recapture some of the strangeness of that. So here's my thesis in one sentence. Changes in local circumstances produce theological changes at the cosmic end of doctrine. So very small local things produce enormous, really significant changes in doctrine in the tradition. Now, local changes, I want to suggest to you, are matters of encounter, of, of relating to one another. We encounter new environments. This church is a church plant. That is a very radical example of a church having a new encounter. We encounter new political settlements. So if you hang around in Jakarta long enough, you're going to see some pretty major political changes. Uh, we're already seeing them. We encounter new neighbors as new people move in and the old neighbors move away. These are all local changes which fundamentally shape how we view the world. 
But they may also be produced by large-scale shifts like war. The most obvious ones in Europe were the Industrial Revolution in the early 19th century, and then towards the end of that century, the other major shift, which makes possible the kinds of study that I was drawing attention to earlier, which is readily available intercontinental travel. I have come to Indonesia from Britain, and it took me 14 hours to get here. For thousands and thousands of years, that was a journey which simply wouldn't have been possible. Because, and it, even if you did make it, many, many others would have died on the journey. It's, it's a dangerous thing to travel. So the Industrial Revolution and the availability of intercontinental travel utterly transformed theology. Um, they, they completely produced new forms of church. And again, this church plant here, it's just not, you, if you were, we were living in 1700, and you said in America that you were going to do a church plant in Indonesia, they'd say, where's that? It would have, it would have been unth unthinkable to do, a, to do that kind of travel. It was hard enough to get from Britain to America in that period. So those kind of things are large-scale shifts which produce doctrinal change, but they also are forced by smaller-scale things. So the changing composition of a local community, discussions of new and challenging ideas, those happen locally, new kinds of local negotiations over resources. This church will be very familiar with negotiations over resources locally, or in response to local crises. And this year and next year, our election years, they're going to be significant locally manifesting crises that are produced by those elections. Um, it's, a, it's a part of, of being Indonesian. So the beauty and the strength, the beauty and the strength of Christian theology lies in its resilience and its adaptivity in the face of novelty, including those extreme kinds of novelty which we call catastrophes. We adapt, we often adapt radically, and as theologians have been around long enough to discover pretty soon, the things that we teach our children turn out not to be the things that we were taught by our parents. This is a fairly normal part of a tradition changing. Now, I've learned that these kinds of discussion often show up in places like Indonesia as a question of inculturation. That's to say, and this is a very simplified version, but we can, we can iron out some of this in questions later, that a European tradition or an American-European tradition of theology needs to adapt to the Indonesian context. How can it be locally relevant? How can it be described in local categories? Um, in the 19th century, of course, how can it be translated into local languages? And in Indonesia, you have a number of possibilities for translation. I, I don't even know how many languages there are, but I'm guessing that there is a Bible in each of them because of, of, of the skills of translators and the skills of multilingual, multilinguists who, who naturally learn new languages as they adapt to new circumstances. So that's one way of thinking about change, is that you have a, a tradition from America and Europe, it travels to Indonesia, and therefore it needs to adapt to a local language. And there's now quite a developed literature, many of you may know it, on local theology in Indonesia. And it displays an attentiveness to local political circumstances, the particularities of Indonesian democratic practices, 
And of course, most importantly, it concerns what it's like to, to try to sow the gospel and develop communities in the world's largest Muslim-majority country. But I don't think that the question of adaptivity is primarily one about inculturation. I don't think, and I want, I want to see whether you would agree with me on this, I don't think it's a matter of there being a settled European-American tradition which then has to adapt to a new Indonesian context. Because that gives us the misleading impression, dangerously misleading impression, I think, that there's a weighty, ancient, old, slow-moving European-American tradition and a light, airy, malleable, changing Indonesian uh, tradition. And that the old tradition, which moves very slowly, has to adapt and become vital in a new Indonesian situation. I don't think that. I think rather there is a single complex, polyphonic, multivocal tradition of Christian theology which is constantly self-corrective, both in Europe and America and in Indonesia. I mean, that was their self-corrective in both contexts. It's self-corrective in Europe, where I learned my Christian languages, and it's self-corrective here in Indonesia, where many of you are learning its languages. It's one complex network of multiple self-corrections. So the main headline there is, if you think that the European tradition is fixed and it has to change in Indonesia, I don't think you're wrong about it having to change in Indonesia. I just think you're wrong about it being fixed in Europe. And of course, if you think any of you who've done any theological education at all, to learn Christian theology is to learn of the chaos of the European political context and the constant changes that theology undergoes. So let's not forget that when we're in Indonesia. So how does Christian theology do this? How does it display its habits of constant self-correction, constant repair, under what I've called changed human circumstances? Well, Christian theology negotiates the present by reaching deep into its past. This is one of the most extraordinary capacities of Christian theology, and this is why Christian theology will be around long after the current fads and fashions of atheist, atheist thought have long gone. We are going to be around a very long time because we reach deep into the past and we're constantly renewed from our traditions. So now, most commonly, Christian theology reaches into doctrine. And I mentioned a few of those doctrines earlier, the doctrine of creation, Christology, ecclesiology, and so forth. Doctrine is the outcomes of previous negotiations. And again, if you study any study of, of the ancient traditions, you'll discover that the history of theology is the history of constant negotiation between communities. The doctrinal record of settlements in Christology, creation, eschatology, trinity, ecclesiology, all of those, this is a record of negotiations in the past. And so as we enter into our negotiations in the present with our neighbors, even with our enemies, we draw on the previous negotiations. In other words, we have experience of negotiating that's not an experience that any individual person necessarily has. Even if you are a new Christian, you are the bearer of a tradition of negotiation. And you, you have a, a theological duty to learn how we did it in the past. 
And so if you do any course of theology, we take you right back to the beginning, into the earliest centuries, and we require that you learn those negotiations. And then we say, now that you've learned how to do that, that's your job in the 21st century. So this is why it's vital for churches to teach doctrine. It's not simply to pass on the truth of the tradition. It's to, it's to keep the living traditions of negotiation alive. And it's why universities and seminaries need to teach them too. These are the only ways in which we hand on the deep past from one generation to another. And the moment we stop doing that, the moment we say we don't need the past, we don't need the previous early church, it's just enough to listen to God, at that moment, I don't think we'll stop being able to preach the gospel. I think we will still be able to do that, actually. But I think we will lose the ability to correct our thinking. We won't have anything to reach into that will resource us, guide us, to steady us when we're anxious and uncertain. But theology at its deepest does not reach into doctrine. At its deepest, you can guess where this is going, theology reaches into scripture, into biblical teaching, into the very earliest records of Jesus. Theology receives and meditates on previous generations' interpretations of scripture, and from time to time, including every time you have to preach, it generates its own new interpretations, and so it should. This happens particularly in times of crisis, when doctrinal authorities are not able to shift certain obstacles, or in extreme cases, when the, do with the doctrinal authorities themselves, they become the obstacles to preaching the gospel. That's when we most fundamentally reach into scripture to correct our thinking. It's a painful matter to have to reach deep into scripture. We shouldn't do it lightly. That's not the same as preaching from the Bible. This is reaching into scripture to change how we think. It means that our current ways of thinking aren't working. It means that our historical reception is not helping us do our work. That's why it's painful. And it places enormous stresses on local communities. It places stresses on our memories. And it places stresses on our settled habits of action. So reading with texts, reading with scripture, is one of the practices of reconstituting our traditions. Things which might have been marginal, things which people didn't really notice in the past, become newly important. So some of you have been reading Hermann Bavinck. Um, there were many decades in which no one was really very interested in Bavinck, but suddenly he is a live, important figure um, being mediated to us by world experts from Jakarta. Theology also does metaphysics. Now, you might think metaphysics, that's got to be the most specialized, crazy arm of theology. That doesn't involve me at all. That is nonsense. It really very centrally involves you. Because metaphysics is the investigation of grammar, of how our languages are organized, and how our whole thinking is structured. If we don't investigate that, someone else will. And we, in our theologies, will become very dependent on other alien traditions of organizing our thinking. And that is a very real danger. Um, the last time that really happened in a major way was in the 1700s, and it produced atheism. That was the period when many churches just gave over the job of thinking about how to organize our thinking to philosophers. 
the philosophers said, thank you very much. That's our expertise. And they set about destroying Christianity. They didn't intend to, but that was the effect of it. And we're still living with the consequences of that now. So it's a very serious business to give up metaphysics. Don't allow other people to do your work for you. Okay, so this is my basic framing point before coming on to Moltmann. The beautiful feature of Christian theology is its polyphony, and because of its polyphony, its powers of negotiation made possible by reaching deep into the traditions of the past, treasuring them, teaching them, handing them on, and learning from them. And it's something very particular to religious traditions. Most traditions that reject religious thinking in Europe, it's not quite such a problem in Indonesia, um, but most of those who do want to reject religion, they don't reach deep into the past. They don't reach anywhere. They just rely on their own resources in the now. So it's something really quite sturdy and weighty about religious traditions, which is something which we have to offer in a world which is changing. Not because we don't want the world to change. That's not something over which we have any control. It's going to change, and we're going to have to adapt. It's that we adapt not by conforming to the world, to use the language of John's Gospel, but by reaching deep into our traditions for the sake of the world. So universities have a job to pass on this wisdom. So if anyone ever says to me, theology doesn't belong in a university. It's, it's crazy to have theology thought. We should, we should teach engineering and mathematics and maybe history, but not theology. I say, Are you kidding? You only need theology if you ever have to adapt to changing circumstances, which, of course, is all the time. So I want this evening to put all of that in the frame for talking about Moltmann, a theologian from Tübingen in South Germany, who over the span of a career of 70 years, he's in his 90s now, so 70 years of, of teaching, um, wanted to change the doctrine of God. He wanted to say, God the Father suffers. So here's how it works, and here's why I think we should have some questions about this. Moltmann's concern is that theology should speak to the younger generation as powerfully as atheist literature. So it's to do with arresting people's attention. This is just before the great European charismatic revival um, it's certainly well before the development of Pentecostal traditions um, that come to Europe. And he says, the job of theology is to respond to three major problems. And those are the extermination of the Jews in Auschwitz, the bombing of the Japanese cities, particularly in Hiroshima, and the prosecution of essentially a capitalist war in Vietnam. So Moltmann's a very clearly left-wing German theologian. And those are his three emblematic things. If theology cannot respond persuasively to Auschwitz, to Hiroshima, and to Vietnam, it cannot address the concerns of the present generation. And I want to call these things enormous problems. I think you'll agree, if you had to pick three enormous problems, and you were writing in 1960s, these would be a very natural choice. So how does he respond to this? 
He wants to produce a theology that's relevant to the new generation, that will speak to them, and that will enable them not to have to rely on dark atheist literature to confront the suffering of the world. And so he reopens the question of the doctrine of God. And he says two important things. And I want you to bear in mind what I was saying about repairing traditions by reaching deep. He says, first of all, there needs to be a Trinitarian theology of the cross. So not just a doctrine of the Trinity and a doctrine of the cross, but a combined Trinitarian doctrine of the cross. And at the heart of this, there will be a claim that Jesus suffers and as God the Son and God the Father suffers too, although they suffer differently. But secondly, and he's not quite so open about this, but I think we should pay attention to this. He says that previous attempts to treat this question don't work for us. So he's writing for the 19, late, late 1960s. And that means, essentially, that the early church's ways of making sense of Jesus' divinity and Jesus' humanity, the early church's attempts to confront the doctrine of the Trinity, the early church's attempts to speak meaningfully about the cross, he thinks they're deficient and they won't enable us to repair theology. So Moltmann reaches deep into the tradition, but what he finds isn't good enough. And so he then sets about reconstituting the tradition. Okay, so that's what he does. The idea of enormous problems, I want to suggest to you, itself has a history. And if we were to time travel back into the 19th century, and then into the 18th century, and 17th century, and 16th century, I don't think we would find anyone concerned with enormous problems. The very idea of an enormous problem doesn't exist. So the first thing I want to point out is that the construction of the very notion of an enormous problem, that's to say a problem which, when you confront it, is just too big to contemplate. The idea that you might confront a problem so cataclysmic, so awful, that it just shuts down your thinking. This is a really new idea in the 1960s. So when Moltmann confronts these enormous problems, it's not that there have always been these enormous problems and theology is now failing to confront them. Theology never confronted enormous problems because it couldn't even imagine what an enormous problem would be. There have been big problems in the past. I suppose the biggest problem of the 18th century, which provoked a lot of literature, was the earthquake in Lisbon, which buried three quarters of uh, the capital city of Portugal and produced an, a lot of soul searching about how God could allow this to happen. Um, it's hard to imagine any Indonesians having that kind of problem because <laughs> volcanic eruptions and things happening all the time in this country. But it was very rare for that to happen in Portugal in Europe at that time. Um, but even that's not an enormous problem. That's the problem of a city having its infrastructure collapse because of a natural event. So I want to say that Christian theology has not traditionally had to do with enormous problems. It's not even imagined that there could be such things. It's primarily negotiated with local small-scale changes, and it adapts in the light of those small-scale changes. So one of the shifts we see in Moltmann's attempt to reconfigure the doctrine of God 
is that he ceases to concern himself with small problems that local communities confront, and he invents, along with his generation, a new category of enormous problems, and then says, theology is doing a terrible job of confronting these enormous problems. How can we speak to our, our generation if we don't confront these enormous problems? And this is indeed a real problem for theology, because our traditions don't deal in enormous problems. So the first slightly skeptical question I want to put to you is, should theology be dealing with enormous problems? Is that really our job as theologians? That's not to say that Christian theology doesn't produce significant changes in doctrine. As I said right at the start, Christian theology is always producing really significant changes in doctrine. But by and large, it's because of very local circumstances, not enormous problems. In other words, the enormity, the largeness of the changes in theology isn't produced by the largeness or enormity of the problems. The problems are often quite local. Now, I want to suggest to you that the problem with Moltmann's solution is not that he wants to recommend enormous changes. I mean, that's the normal objection that's made to Moltmann. It's very common for theologians to say, ah, the problem with Moltmann is he wants to make enormous changes to the doctrine of God. Well, actually, I think that theology does make enormous changes from time to time, and he might have been right. Maybe the late 1960s was a time when there needed to be some pretty big changes in doctrine. I don't think it's true, but I don't think that was clear when he was writing. I think he could have been writing in a time when enormous changes were needed. I also think that the problem is not that he recommends alterations to the doctrine of God. It's certainly a very arresting claim and one that should stimulate us to be slightly concerned. Do you really want to change the doctrine of God? You want to say that God suffers? Yes, he says. I do want to say that. And I think you should say it too. I think that too is very thinkable and it's a very respectable theological practice. I think it's a very extreme practice. I think you have to be pretty careful with wanting to, to shift the tradition. But under certain circumstances, we did do that. We, the church, we really have done radical changes to doctrine in the past. So I don't think there's any reason to rule out his proposals simply because they're radical. No. I want to suggest to you that the problem is he wants us to confront enormous problems. And I don't think we should. I don't think that confronting Auschwitz and Hiroshima and Vietnam as enormous problems are the kinds of things that we can get our heads around. I think, I think that's the whole point of them, is that we can't. The challenge is so enormous trying to comprehend those. They can't be comprehended. There have been multiple attempts in various works of art, of works of music, works of drama, novels, all investigating aspects of these things. But they've all been very specific. The great literature, the great music, the great art, the great drama that surrounds these issues, the great movies in relation to Vietnam, for example, they're not about Vietnam as a huge, enormous problem. They're about the problems confronting soldiers in an alien land. They're a problem about uniform which doesn't fit. They're problems of being exposed to toxic weapons that cause problems for your children. They're very small-scale things. So a theology which says, no, we're going to deal with the big questions, we're going to confront the big problems, that's the real innovation. 
that Moltmann is engaged in. And I think we should resist it. So when we talk about Moltmann's difficulties, the real challenge is not his innovations. It's not his willingness to, con to, to want to, to, to reconfigure the tradition. It's that he wants us to confront these enormous difficulties. It's a question, in other words, of scale. Big-scale theological changes are a reality for us. They do happen from time to time. But they're always in response to locally particular problems. So that should then lead us to say, well, in that case, what is it that's causing the really root worry for Moltmann? Why is his generation in the 1960s so transfixed by atheist literature? And why is he, as a Christian theologian, so anxious about the irrelevance, the irrelevance of the church? It's a huge theme in his theology. Well, maybe it's not the enormity of suffering at all that's causing it. Maybe it's smaller scale, not very interesting things like mobile communities, urban developments, economic changes. I mean, he, he knows that they're important. He just doesn't make them significant. Institutional changes in the church, for example. The church in Germany undergoes enormous changes in this period. So these are not very exciting things to confront urban development, for example. But if you really want to understand why Christian communities need to adapt to circumstances, you need to take an interest in urban planning in a really major way, not least in, in, in uh, Jakarta, where, of course, you have a massive series of regeneration uh, projects up and running. And those are going to affect churches in a pretty uh, basic way. Because if, if, as might happen, the traffic problem in Jakarta is partially solved by better infrastructure, that's going to enable communities to worship together that could never worship before, because you can actually tr travel further distances. So if we wonder how to read figures like Moltmann in an Indonesian context, I think partly it's a matter of not being tricked into thinking there are enormous problems. So if someone says to you, and you're, you're trying to, to preach the gospel in Indonesia, in, in Indonesia, what kind of problems you have, if your first instinct is to say, oh, we have enormous problems, in Indonesia, I think you've been tricked by a form of thinking which this book and others has taught us to do. I think we should resist it. I think you should say, well, we have a pretty big set of very small problems which we're constantly having to negotiate. We're having to negotiate over resources and land and money, time, access to politicians. We really, they're very tedious things, all of which obstruct our ability to preach the gospel. But the problem of preaching the gospel in Indonesia is not that this is the world's largest Muslim-majority country with 200 million Muslims. How many of us is likely to encounter 200 million Muslims? That's just simply not an issue for any of us. But we all have to negotiate in our small way. But the other thing is this will connect us. The problems that I have in Birmingham, negotiating in our local city context, 30% uh, of our population is Muslim. It's a very vibrant Muslim populations, it's a really thriving community, um, they're not a million miles away from some of the issues that you're confronting here in Jakarta. The fact that Indonesia is an enormous country, I don't think makes the problems any more enormous here. Now, we may well need, as a consequence of our local problems, 
to make enormous doctrinal changes. That may fall to us, but I think probably it won't. And therefore we should put to one side these very ambitious works of German theology, which try to make radical changes to the theological tradition, and simply say, if we have to make enormous changes, we will make them. But it will require much more than extreme language about enormous problems for us to do that. That's my proposal for you this evening. Thank you. So, during the Aryan crisis, so we're dealing in the early 300s in the Greek-speaking church, there was a real debate about whether there was a hierarchy between God the Father and God the Son. And there was a real question about whether Jesus was divine or not, because Jesus always refers to God as Father, and he always places himself in a position of subservience to him. So there was an enormous debate about how this could possibly be the case. And there was a very strong wing of the church which argued that Jesus was human. And there was a very strong wing of the church that said, no, no, Jesus is not human, Jesus is divine. There are real challenges to the capacity of the community to worship together. And when the Council of Nicaea met in 325, in what is now modern Turkey, they said no to both of those positions and said, on the contrary, Jesus is divine and human, and God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all God. That was a very radical shift in the doctrine of God. And notice the date, 325. The church had been worshipping faithfully for 200 years before that. That's like us looking back from 2018 to looking back to 1818. That's how long the churches, uh, nine, yeah, 1818. That's how long the churches had been worshiping before they made this change. It's a huge period. So that would be an example of a radical change in the doctrine of God. There have not been many radical changes in that subsequently. I think that the. Uh, there have been periods when the doctrine of the Trinity has been more important and less important throughout history. And there have been then developments in certain churches which then denied it. So the next big radical changes in doctrines of God would be the result, would be the, the, the rise of radical Reformation traditions. So Quakers, the, the rise of Unitarians, Deists in the, in the 1700s, they all had very radical changes to the doctrine of God. But those doctrinal changes did not find their way into the mainstream churches. Can you say a little bit about what's at stake if you ascend to more modern religion and say that God the Father actually is God the Father? Why should we resist 
So Moltmann knows this all too well, and he confronts it in his book, which is why he is a great theologian. So I think we should reject his proposals, but I do not think he is a bad theologian. I think he is a superb theologian. I think we have a lot to learn from him. Um, the main reason in the early church for not saying this, and it never occurred to them to say that God suffers, but if you, if you had gone back to the early church councils and said, ah, maybe God the Father suffers, they would have said, ah, oh, no, we can't say that, because that means that God cannot be relied on. In other words, God, God becomes vulnerable, and if we are going to put our trust in God as the one who saves us, we cannot have God being vulnerable in ways that can defeat his purposes. So they would have said it comes down to compromising God's ability to be God. So it's, it's a question of the reliability of God. When we pray to God, God doesn't say, I'm suffering. Something like that. So in other words, you, you could affirm it. You could, you, could you could find ways to affirm God's suffering. You'd need to address that question. I think it, there's no reason to think it can't be done. But my, my objection is, we may need to do that, but I don't, see, I don't see the need to do it at the moment. So it's, the objection is not so much that Maltman's proposals don't work and will fail. It's that we just don't need them. And therefore, naturally, I think we should be more conservative than that about doctrinal change. I think we should be very reluctant to change. Not completely reluctant, but I think we should be very reluctant because these are the resources that we need to draw on when we're trying to correct our thinking. So it's for the sake of having a, a tradition that we can draw on. No. Um, so Moltmann's most important scriptural text is Jesus crying, why have you forsaken me? That's, that's his most crucial text. So he has a long meditation on what it means for Jesus to be forsaken and a parallel discussion of what it means for God the Father to forsake the Son. He thinks that's an underexplored dimension of scripture. Now, of course, Scripture has nothing to say about God the Father forsaking Jesus. It only has things to say about Jesus' saying, why have you forsaken me? So, scripturally, this is a very complex area for Maltman, and he is engaged in some pretty radical innovations in wanting to meditate on what it means for God to abandon Jesus. So, that, okay, that's part of it. Um, I think that um, the way in which... I mean, the tradition has always affirmed that God suffers, by the way, sort of. And the most obvious way in which this is explored is in the understanding that Jesus is one person. So there aren't two Jesuses. There's not Jesus who is the Son of God and Jesus who is the Son, uh, Jesus who is the human. Um, Jesus, is, Jesus is a unified, single... Uh, the word that comes after that, a unified single something, it doesn't matter what you say, there are various words for this, hypostasis, suppositum, essence, uh, subject, substance, I mean, you can, any of these words from philosophy, 
It really makes no difference. They're not very informative words. There's just, but there's, there's only one of Jesus. So the tradition said, ah, so Jesus suffered. Why do we say this? It's in the creed. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, so we're not going to deny that. The, the cost of denying the creed is catastrophic. So we're not going to deny that. Jesus suffers. Are we going to say that only Jesus' humanity suffers? No, the tradition said. Really, It's really interesting. It said, no, Jesus is a union of the divine nature and the human nature, and it is the union that suffers. And therefore, it is quite proper to say that God suffers. It's just if you say, what, how much of God? Then you start to get into silly debates about whether God the Son suffers, but not God the Father, and all the rest of it. Um, the tradition has been very, very clear that God the Son suffers, and God the Father does not. But all of Jesus suffers. and The, the, the tradition was very clear about that. It refused to say only the, only, only the human nature suffers. It's really interesting. And, it, and the consequences of saying only the human nature suffers are catastrophic for theology, because then you've got to split Jesus. And once you have a split Jesus, you haven't got Jesus anymore. No, he, he, he wants to say, God the Son suffers. That's not a problem for us. That's a, that's a settled issue. Um, what he wants to say is that God's divine, that Jesus' divine nature really suffers. So he, he, he doesn't want to split Jesus up, but he has tendencies in that direction. But he also wants to say that God the Father suffers in grief. Now, is this an emotion? Is he attributing emotions to God the Father? Ah, that's a tricky one. I'm not, I, I don't think he ever says that he is, actually. I just think he's wanting to say that, that the suffering of the Son is so extreme and the love of God the Father is so total that the only thing we can, surely, he says, the only thing we can affirm about God's love is that he must have grief at the suffering of the Son. What kind of father would not have grief in the face of such suffering? Something like that. It's a very compelling form of thinking. It's, it's, it's not a crazy way of thinking at all. It's, it's, it's quite attractive in certain ways. It's just I think it's not necessary. Yes, I, I, I knew perfectly well before I came that you are an evangelical community who are determined to preach the gospel in Jakarta. So I think this is going to be a real temptation for you. I think you'll be constantly tempted to tell people that 
everything is such a huge problem and only God can save you. I think that's very dangerous. I think it's a real innovation. I think that magnifying the problems is very unwise because historically it produces atheism, actually. And part of the, part of the difficulty is that if you are preaching the massive problem, which only God is the solution to, the danger is that your hearers will believe you about the massive problem, and they won't believe you about God being able to save them. And then you really put them in danger, I think. Because that's not what we preach. We preach that there are endless difficulties, annoying negotiations. You know, We're constantly having to deal with our neighbors, with our husbands and wives, even worse than our neighbors. Um, we have to deal with our children, God help us. Our children have to, your children have to deal with their parents, even worse. You know, the, these are the things which the gospel actually helps us negotiate. It's how to manage these small things. And then our responsibilities to the vulnerable, which of course is one of the concerns that Maltman so movingly and inspiringly writes about. He, re, he certainly inspired me as a, a young graduate student to think about the social responsibilities of Christian theology. I think that's a really great message. So yes, no magnifying big problems, and certainly not for the sake of the gospel. I think, it's a, I think it's a very unwise, I don't think it's false necessarily, I just think it's unwise. So I can. The, there is a very interesting German uh, social theoretician. Um, I'm trying to remember his first name. His last name is Kittler, who writes about this. And his, his in, interest is in the changing nature of media, that it becomes possible to communicate things in certain ways in the, in, in the, in the earlier 20th century, which wasn't possible before. And that starts to lay the conditions for what you might call the consciousness of enormity. So, this, so for example, it's a very common thing if you go around museums of science that there's a big narrative which is spun, which is the, the, the universe is enormous and we are a tiny, tiny part of it. Or the timeline is absolutely massive and we're this tiny, small part at the end of the timeline. This is a really very, very new way of thinking about our place in the world. And it's, it's made possible by these changing ways of confronting the scale of time, the scale of the universe, and the ways in which certain forms of media enable us to access these things. We were, we were, we were, con we were our, de our dependency for news of the outside was always on locally transmitted news reports. So for hundreds of years, if you wanted to hear about the outside world, you go to the marketplace and talk to the merchants, because they're the ones who are traveling from place to place who have news of other parts. So the Silk Road up into China is an enormous source of, of this, but it's very small-scale stuff. Once you have the rise of foreign reporting, the rise of empire and reporting back of the empire, those kinds of things, I think those are the conditions for enormity. Something like that. And it's not bad in itself. 
it's just it comes with risks which we need to confront and be honest about, I think. Once outrage starts, it is a voracious beast, and it cannot be assuaged, and it cannot be calmed. And it's not, be it's not because there's, there's not enough you can say. It's the people don't want to be calmed. You know, it's, it's a blissful ecstasy to be outraged on, on social media. So I think one of, the, one of the marks of the Christian in the contemporary climate is that we are never outraged. But we are absolutely opposed to suffering and sin and poverty. You don't want to be a cold Christian. And you may just be very sentimental. Maybe you need to stop being sentimental. I mean, there's, there's room for telling people that the question is a bad question, I think. If you, if you genuinely think a question has been misposed, but then the onus, the responsibility is to pose the question better. And the question, where is God in Auschwitz? There's, there's no clever answer to that in theology. A, a theologian who says, ah, yes, I'm a professional theologian, roll up, roll up, I will now answer the question of where, this is a charlatan, this is a circus performer, not a theologian. Um, I think that that question is enormous, and the enormity is the problem. I think it's okay to teach people about the rise of enormity, and say that question is very, very problematic. Not because it's foolish, but because thinking on that scale is not something which we are equipped to do. So I think, I think often theologians are very confident that because they deal in the big questions, after all, they talk about, we talk about God, we're seduced into thinking that we are competent to address these huge problems. And we're simply not. So I think more modesty is called for here. But as you suggest, the important thing is to be able to be intellectually modest without denying the force of someone else's real doubts and to address those. But if you're in Jakarta and someone's overwhelming problem is the Holocaust, I'm thinking, hmm, maybe we could encourage them to worry about some things closer to home because there's plenty to worry about here. And that would not be to belittle them. That would be, that would be to help refocus them on something which is serious, but also for which we as a community have resources 
for addressing and which we have a responsibility to address. So you can be kind and cold. Reparative, yes, Repair, repairing thinking, yeah. Great. So I tackle three problems in the book, um, and they're, they're not enormous problems. They're quite small ones, but they're ones which have quite significant influences. So the first is I try and work out why it was that Augustine said that evil is a privation. It's a very technical argument about evil, um, and what philosophical arguments he brought to support that. And my basic argument is that he has very good theology and really very questionable philosophy. I want to do a better job on the philosophy for him. I, I really think his theology is good. The second is on Moltmann, and I want to say that the scale of the problem is too big. That's the problem. In other words, the problem is not that he makes theological mistakes. That's not his problem. It's that he gets the scale of the problem wrong. Um, and it's a very long discussion. And then the third is engaging with a theologian who I was very inspired by when I was a graduate student called John Milbank. And he wrote a very interesting book um, whose main thesis is that Christian theologians should stop letting sociologists tell them what the world is like. They need to go out and look for themselves. But in the midst of this discussion, he says that only Christianity can solve the world's problems. And I think that's a very foolish claim to make. I think he makes a very good claim. So as a theologian, I think he's right to say, only through Jesus can we come to the Father. That's a biblical claim, so we can defend that. But only Christianity can solve our problems. I, I just think that's excessive. So the repair I do there is, is, is talking about claims which theologians make, which are very persuasive in a limited domain, when they're unrestricted and are made to apply to everything, they become nonsensical and problematic. So those are the three. They're not dramatic. I'm not trying to write a book like Moltmann's that will kind of grab the generation's reading habits and get them reading uh, John's Gospel rather than reading Albert Camus. That's not my aim. I'm trying to help the younger generation of theologians be slightly less sentimental. Correct. Yes. I think the question of whether God suffers, in this case, is caused by a mistake about the scale of the question. In other words, I don't think the question of God's suffering needs to be asked. <coughs> if it needs to be asked, then let's ask it and let's try and fix it. 
but I just think it doesn't need to be asked, or at least it doesn't, doesn't need to be asked in this way. So, yes, it's a cheat. I said I was going to talk about whether God suffers, and, the, and, I, and I'm actually telling you we shouldn't talk about whether God suffers. So you're right to feel disappointed. I, I aimed to disappoint you, but I hope it was an interesting disappointment. Well, thank you. My goodness, that is immensely kind. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Good. Uh, someone should take a photograph of us together, I would like. But not with this horrible machine on. <laughs>